The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hi, everyone. <laughs> it, it's nice to be here. Hi, Bill. <laughs> Good to see you. <clears throat> so, um, I don't know where Aunt Andrea is, but she asked me quite a while ago if I would fill in for her tonight. So, here I am. I don't, when is she coming back? Do you know? Oh, it's the daily life practice retreat. Okay. Okay, great. So, um, <clears throat> so tonight I wanted to talk about one aspect of Buddhist practice. And um, it's what we just got done doing. Um, I want to talk about meditation and uh, how meditation develops in stages. <clears throat> Before I do that, oh, excuse me, I've lost my voice. Uh, before I do that, I want to encourage anyone who is available on Saturday to think about coming to this day long with uh, Nikki and uh, uh, Saida Ujagara. Ujagara was a monk in the same monastery that I practiced in in Burma. He's a French Canadian, and um, he was. <laughs> He's not here, so I can say it. He was the envy of all the Western monks because his meditation practice was so deep and so profound, and he was like sort of famous <laughs> amongst monks. And uh, in addition to that, he is just an incredibly nice man. So uh, if you're available and inclined, I would really encourage you to come. I think it'll be a nice day long. Nikki also practiced with um, my teacher, my Burmese teacher was Pawak Sayadaw. Nikki practiced with Pawak uh, here in the States. And I don't think she practiced with him in Burma. Um, <clears throat> and I actually met Nikki on, on one of those retreats where we were spending months <laughs> trying, trying to practice at Ujagara's level. I think she did better than me. <laughs> anyway, so I want to encourage you to think about that. Um, I'm going to try to come. But tonight I wanted to uh, just spend some time talking about meditation and how meditation develops in stages or progresses in stages. And um, having said that, I would um, immediately say that uh, um, the, the progress of meditation isn't necessarily linear. And the kinds of things that people will uh, write or teach about in terms of uh, sort of a uh, progression, um, <clears throat> the, the caution is that your own personal experience may or may not map to the way things are laid out. Um, and I found uh, that to be absolutely true in my own practice. When I was with my teacher in Burma, he had a very specific way of teaching, and it wasn't uh, a situation like his way or the highway, but there was one way that he taught. And... Um, and it took a while to get used to the fact that that his teaching was embedded completely in the way that he taught. And 
I needed to adjust my, um, my practice so that uh, if it didn't map to exactly what he was teaching me, I didn't, you know, give up and, and just um, go down one rabbit hole after another. Because my practice, in many cases, did not map to what he was saying. But as I practiced longer, I, I began to understand, oh, this is what he meant by that, or this is what he meant by this. I just didn't get it at the time. Boy, I really lost my voice today. I've been silent all day, so <laughs> the voice is gone tonight. <clears throat> so there's been a lot of attention that's been given to uh, the many benefits of meditation and its, posi- uh, its positive consequences on our emotional and psychological um, and social well-being. We've been um, uh, having access to um, mindfulness-based stress reduction meditation for 30-some years or more. And um, it's in all the hospitals and, and basically it's been practiced all over the place. Um, meditation centers like this are um, more and more common here in the West and um, so there's been a lot of information or a lot of um, uh, attention given to meditation. But there's not a lot of detailed information about how the mind actually works and what's going on in the brain and in the mind when we undertake a meditation practice. Do you agree? There, there's a lot of, there, we know about men, mindfulness and meditation and people have been practicing it a lot. Um, but it's hard, it's actually hard to describe the process that happens in the mind. But as we begin to meditate, we begin to see how certain things work. So some of us are more experienced seasoned med- meditators, which may only mean that we've meditated for a little bit longer than some other people. And others of us are fairly new to meditation. So whether we're new or whether we would consider ourselves seasoned, um, most of us, I think, would readily admit that it's not so easy to establish a regular meditation practice and that is sustainable. Do you agree? It's not so easy to have a daily practice that we can actually sustain. So despite our wanting that, our wishing that, uh, the reality is that life gets in the way. And this is completely normal. So I want to suggest to you that meditation practice is both an art and a science. So there is some science to it. And we can, we can sort of approach it um, from, both, from both directions. So I'll start a little bit with um, some, of the, some of the benefits. So current research um, suggests that when we cultivate a a regular sitting practice, um, that it's good for us on many, many different levels. Um, 
On a physical level, it lowers our blood pressure. Uh, it enhances our ability to concentrate and therefore makes us more effective at work or as leaders if we're in a leadership role. Um, it improves our sleep. It's being used to treat depression, obsessive compulsive disorders, PTSD, chronic and acute pain. It's being used for all of these reasons across the board. And these benefits of meditation actually increase our emotional stability and they help us meet the constant ebb and flow of the challenges that come up in our daily life experience. These are all wonderful be benefits of meditation. And um, <clears throat> because I listed them first doesn't mean they're not as important as some of the benefits that come later, but these are some very obvious benefits. But they're only some of the benefits that come from meditation. So <clears throat> as we begin to deepen our practice and understanding about meditation, we, we begin to have access to different um, uh, experiences uh, that um, actually feel very, they, they make us feel very calm and peaceful and happy and joyful. They bring great pleasure. Some of you have had experiences like this in your meditation. Have you? Yeah? Good. <clears throat> so these, these are wonderful mental states that are um, associated with these things. And they, they bring us to a wonderful quality that um, is, I th the Pali word for it is sukha. It's a kind of happiness that's filled with profound contentment. Just a profound, deep, deep, settled contentment. And uh, I can remember uh, when I experienced that quality the first time in my own meditation practice. And um, it's, it would be a little bit hard for me to describe it, but it had a, it had a very, it had a quality to it that I would use the word pristine. It was so perfect. It was like nothing... Nothing was wrong. There was, n there was no place that anything was wrong or out of place. It was just pristine. And in that, there was a, a quality of purity, a quality of um, not so much perfection, but purity. Maybe that's perfection, but it had this quality of purity associated with it. So <clears throat> as, as we, you know, continue to practice meditation, we begin to touch these, these, other, um, these other very, very lovely and pleasant states. And what we can begin to notice, what we be, I should say what we begin to notice, is that in our daily life experience, we um, have access to um, a sense a very real sense of uh, heightened resilience. Uh, 
so that when things come along that are a little bit challenging or disturb us in some way, um, we recover much more quickly. So the periods for which, during which, we're agitated or we're off balance, those periods begin to um, diminish. And um, this is experienced as a kind of resilience, as a very real experience of resilience. So when this happens, um, we often uh, realize that we are, are, well, we have a heightened appreciation for um, our connectedness to other people, our common humanity, and um, our, our interconnectedness with not just other people, but with all of life. And so the sense of being separate, um, that also being a separate ego, that's there, but it also doesn't pull us in the same way that um, sometimes when our mind isn't trained, uh, we sort of drift off in, into our own worlds, our own, our own little ego structures. So it loosens a sense of separateness that's created by the ego. And all this begins to just unfold in the most natural ways, where it's, it's almost as though... Um, I love the way Gil talks about it. The first time I went on a long retreat, he said a couple of really profound things to me, but one of them was, you're not doing this practice, this practice is is doing you. This practice is doing you. And you know, it's, we go into it and we have these ideas about our own agency and our own role in it and what we have to do. And at a certain point as you practice, sometimes this happens quicker for some people than others, but as you begin to um, sort of uh, surrender (laughs) to the dukkha of all of that striving, you begin to open up to just allowing the practice to unfold, to being available and receptive to what's actually going on rather than trying to be the doer, the agent, and trying to make something happen. So this is where it gets a little bit dicey in talking about it because it's not like we don't have to show up and practice, but we can't, by sheer force of will, make ourselves be aware or make ourselves concentrate on the chosen meditation object. We can learn to practice and discipline the mind and that's a very, um, that's really necessary, obviously. Um, But it can also get in the way and if we don't recognize the role that will and striving is playing, we can sort of um, uh, derail our own best efforts. 
So, <clears throat> so as the meditator begins to get further and further along in his meditation or her meditation, these pleasant experiences are sometimes associated with it. Not always, but sometimes. But no matter how pleasant they are and how beautiful they are, sometimes people actually access deep states of absorption called jhanas and other states that feel very lovely. But they are just experiences that, as lovely as they are, they don't really last. That doesn't mean they're not important and it doesn't mean that they're not wonderful, but life can present us with um, sickness, with aging, with loss, with other difficult circumstances that completely disturb us, even though we've been meditating for a long time. Have you ever noticed? We, we, we think that we're, we're just going along and our meditation is developing and our meditation is going to make everything wonderful and then, boom, we get knocked off our perch. And it's completely normal. It's completely normal. So, so we are still, we, if, we look in, if we look at our practice honestly, we can see that we can, we're still subject to greed and aversion and ignorance and lust and confusion and all of those kinds of things. Even though we might have had some really wonderful experience of pristine purity. You see? So I had that experience and then (laughs) a day later I was completely back to normal. And then, you know, and then I chased that experience and you see? And all of that is just part of the way that, that I discovered my own practice unfolding. So <clears throat> we find that we're still subject to the influences of our, of our deeply ingrained ment- mental habits. Now, <clears throat> What I want to say here is a big leap because I'm, <clears throat> I'm suggesting that this is possible for everyone in the room, including myself, and I have to sort of tell myself this over and over again. But the highest goal of meditation is not to lower our blood pressure or to attain some state of tranquil bliss the highest goal of meditation is to awaken and to free ourselves from the attachments of greed, hatred, and delusion. That is the highest goal of meditation, if I can be so bold. And and it's a process rather than a destination. Awakening isn't like and now and you get it and then you've got it. Awakening is a process that happens and then it happens again and it happens again and it happens again if you continue to practice. So I want to go back to when I was in Burma with my teacher. He would give the monks and the nuns instructions. 
And he would tell us, now go meditate with your instructions. So we would go and meditate and then we would come. We had to come every day and report to him. <clears throat> and so we would come and we would report. Yes, Sayadaw, I did what you said and this is what happened. Good. Now go do it again. <laughs> yes, Sayadaw, I did what you said and this is what happened. Good. Now go do it again. Again and again and again and again. So <clears throat> it actually took a while before, I'm a little bit slow, before I figured out what he was doing was he was teaching mastery. He was teaching how to master a, a particular kind of meditative practice. And so one might touch a state that, like a deep state of absorption or jhana or something, and then not be able to access, again, access it again the next day or the next sitting or the next year, you see? So <clears throat> it's like any, anything worthwhile. You have to practice it over and over and over again before it starts to become something that you can access easily and eventually effortlessly. So some of you have been in my compassion course. <laughs> Gina was one of my first students. When, <laughs> yeah, there you were. You were too, the, both, the two of you. It was great to have you in the class. <clears throat> so it's very much like this with compassion. When you're taking a, a, a quality like compassion and you're, you're learning to, you're consciously wanting to make this into a new kind of a habit, you first of all have to recognize what it is, what gets in the way of it, and then you have to just practice over and over and over again, recognizing when compassion shows up and how it shows up. So... First you have to recognize what it is and then you have to recognize what the conditions are in which compassion can arise. So it's very much like this when, when <coughs> we're meditating. So <coughs> this quality of awakening is, is just like some of the earlier benefits of meditation, is something that you can actually begin to practice in a way that you become um, more adept at it. You become adept, you become a master, so to speak. So don't ask me what a master is, but <laughs> you become adept at it. You become able to, to uh, touch this, um, state um, uh, at will, I would say. And, uh, and if from what I've been taught and from what I've studied, you know, at a certain point, um, the, the, the experience of awakening in an actual meditation, in actual meditation. In between the meditations, that quality will sort of stay with you. 
it'll stay with you for longer and longer periods. So, <clears throat> the highest goal of meditation is awakening, and um, which I'm going to describe as an understanding that comes from a profound realization um, and an awakening to what's been called ultimate truth. It's attaining a genuine wisdom, and it's a direct experience. It's not something that... Um, um, yeah. It's been said that an, an awakening event, um, quote, dispels ignorance through direct experience. And I, I really like that quote because that speaks to me. I, I understand what that means. But even um, experiences of awakening aren't stable um, unless mastery is cultivated. So you can have an awakening experience, even in, uh, as an adept meditator, and that experience isn't necessarily stable unless you actually cultivate mastery. So meditation unfolds in a roughly sequential order, though it's not necessarily linear, as I said, and our individual practices don't necessarily map to the many different ways different teachers will describe um, the path to us. So I want to start at the beginning. We can't really leapfrog over where we are and hope to sustain our practice through the sheer force of will because it's not sustainable. We can't sustain a meditation practice in that way. So, step one. <clears throat> Everything hinges on the backbone of intention. You, you have to have the intention to practice. You have to, have, you have to know what your intention is, and your intention will be an anchor that you can tether your, your attention and awareness on as the mind does what the mind does, as it drifts off and it forgets and it gets distracted. So we recognize the importance of the role of intention. And uh, this is something that, um, that neuroscientists have uh, pointed out that I find, I, I, I find interesting because uh, this has been part of Buddhist practice for thousands of years. But when our intentions are continuous and repeated over and over and over and over again, what's happening is that we're inclining the mind in a certain direction. And as we incline the mind through, in the course of practice, through many different meditation sessions, this <clears throat> gives rise to uh, repeated mental activity or activity in the brain. Literally, when you're inclining the mind towards loving kindness, let's say, or compassion, let's say loving kindness. We were in a loving kindness class yesterday or the day before. <clears throat> uh, even if you are not feeling loving kindness, even if you think you aren't feeling loving kindness, the mere inclination of the mind in that direction repeated 
over and over and over again, will activate synapses in the brain that create new neural networks that will eventually turn into a new mental habit. And so nature cooperates with us when we try to cultivate these beautiful qualities, whether it's loving kindness or compassion or mindfulness. So know what your intention is when when intentions are continuous and repeated over and over again. They do turn into new kinds of mental habits. So as meditators, we're going against the momentum of the way the world operates, the way we have operated in the world up until we start paying attention and and learning to discipline the mind in this way. And it's not easy to push against the, the force of the stream of life that we've been part of. So repeatedly sustained intentions lead to repeated mental activity, which in turn become new mental habits. So simply put, repeated mental actions become mental habits, new mental habits. So this is what's happening in the mind. This is what's happening in the brain. So there's a couple of steps that I want to go through here with you, and then we'll have some time for question and answers, I hope. So the first one is probably the most difficult, and it's been said that the beginning is much harder than as we go along, and it makes sense because we're learning the the foundational pieces of building a meditation practice or cultivating or developing a meditation practice. So the first is to hold the purposeful and conscious intention to actually sit down and meditate every day for a certain period of time. This is, I wish that there was an easier way (laughs) that was better news, but the reality is And I, after all these years of meditating, I still have a, you know, I still struggle with every day, every day, every day. And, but uh, that's just in the spirit of transparency. Don't be discouraged by my my bad habits. But hold that conscious intention to sit down and meditate every day and decide how long you're going to meditate for, and then don't get up until that time is over. You actually are training yourself. If you wanted to run a marathon, you would have to learn how to work yourself up to it. If you want to play a beautiful concerto on the piano, you have to play your scales. You have to learn how to to do this and the beginning is the most difficult but and how can you do that without having a strong intention you see so <clears throat> so the first thing is to 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 
resolve to meditate every day for a certain period of time and don't let anything get in the way. And if anything gets in the way, you know, that's not the end of the world. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just come back and start again. Bhikkhu Bodhi, some of you know Bhikkhu Bodhi. (laughs) He gave a wonderful transmission. He said, two things are necessary to be awakened. And I said, sign me up. I'm all ears. And he says, start and continue. Start and continue. Over and over and over again. Start and continue. I love it. It's so friendly, too. I mean, we're not going to get it right the first time or the 10,000th time. So you would just start and continue over and over again. So we resolve to meditate. And then um, I want to just say that many of us sit down and we meditate and we we're, we're sitting down and we think we're meditating, but what we're actually doing is we're going over our to-do list in our mind, we're remembering things, we're planning things. You see, we're drifting and daydreaming and we're doing all those things and that's what minds do. But you can fritter away whole meditation sessions doing that and you can practice like that for years. See, now, <clears throat> Gil always says that there's no moment of mindfulness that's wasted, so don't despair if you daydream in your meditation. Just learn to recognize, ah, daydreaming. See, don't fight with daydreaming. Don't fight with the mind that wanders. Just recognize the mind is wandering. You see, if you know that you're daydreaming, you're no longer lost in the daydream. That's the good news. So you don't have to fight with anything that shows up in your meditation experience. So we're going to meditate every day for a certain period. And during the time that we're meditating, we're going to actually try to pay attention going to try to actually meditate. So <clears throat> when the mind defaults to old habits and we just go wandering around uh, willy-nilly, um, don't beat yourself up for goodness sakes when this happens. But that moment when you recognize that you're no longer with your chosen object, whether it's the breath or, or the phrases of loving kindness or whatever it is, That moment is very important. People have referred to that as the first moment of renewed mindfulness. But I saw one teacher referred to that as the aha moment. You see? The aha aha moment. I remember now my object of meditation. So again, I'm going to go back to my, my Burmese teacher who he would describe mindfulness in many different ways, but the main way that he described it, because he was teaching a a samatha meditation first, uh, initially to his monks, he would describe it as remembering the object of your meditation. So the mind drifts, 
And the moment you recognize you're no longer with the breath, you have remembered the object. So that would be a way that he would describe mindfulness, a very useful way to describe it. And that, that moment is very important. And so when you begin to note, so this is how you can practice in these initial stages. When you notice that moment of waking up, doesn't make any difference how many times you get lost. But when you notice that moment of waking up, pay special attention to that. Notice the way that you meet that moment. You know, see if you're striving to rush back and grab the breath. See what's going on. Um, <clears throat> see how you judge yourself or don't judge yourself. Now, <clears throat> many teachers will say, um, when you notice that you're no longer with the breath or your chosen object of meditation, to gently and kindly <laughs> redirect the breath, the, your attention to the breath. And that's a great instruction if you can, in fact, be gentle and kind in doing that. So I want to just point out that if you notice what your attitude is, if you notice that you're judging yourself or you notice that there's a kind of contraction, you're not being gentle and kind. And this is where the idea of us as the agent or having agency, the doer, gets in the way. We simply have to allow ourselves to be patient until we can be gentle and kind in returning the mind to the object. So one way that I do it, it's worked for me, and I've taught it to many of my students, and it seems to work for them, um, is that rather than redirecting my attention to the breath, because I'm a striver, um, I have learned to just wait patiently for the breath to come back to me, for the breath to show up. In other words, once I recognize I've lost the breath, lost awareness of the breath, instead of intentionally trying to move my attention back to the breath, I wait for the next breath to show up and then I resume um, my focus on the breathing. So it's, uh, it's sort of like you want to pet a cat. Come, kitty, <laughs> sit on my lap and I'll pet you and we'll purr together, you see? If you go chasing the cat, the cat will run away. But if you just sit quietly, patiently, still, the cat's curious and he'll come and s sit on your lap and the cat will be happy and so will you but it's because you waited to receive the cat. So that's just a little, a, little, um, a little hint that may or may not uh, work for you or have relevance for you. So <clears throat> the second point that I wanna make here, I, I better make these points quickly, <laughs> is that um, 
you can power through a mind uh, that wanders or forgets its objects, or you can't power through a mind that wanders or forgets its objects. And you can't force yourself to become aware when the mind is wandering. That's just what it's doing. If the mind has forgotten the breath, you know, the mind has forgotten the breath. That's all that you can't force yourself to, to um, for that, you can't force yourself to, to uh, uh, suddenly remember the breath. And you can't force yourself to become aware when the mind is wandering. So, so uh, I guess I actually talked about this second, second thing. What you can do is, is gently and firmly return the, your attention to the breath. But um, this simple redirecting of, of focus or waiting for the breath to come back to you, what this does as we continue to meditate, and this is the most important point, is that it shortens the periods of mind wandering. It shortens the periods at which we're lost. So we're becoming more and more refined about the nuances of what's happening in the mind when it happens. Our mindfulness is getting brighter and brighter. That's, that's really what's going on. So, um, and and when that happens, we're actually able to sustain our attention on the object, let's say it's the breath, for longer and more continuous periods of time, which obviously lead to deeper states of meditation. So gradually, um, we begin to set our attention to f- uh, focusing on mental objects such as our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. You see, our our meditation is getting more and more nuanced. We're beginning to see more and more things. And this is sometimes referred to as, um, this is a new one to me, but it makes sense. It's sometimes referred to as introspective attention, where we're actually, that's a kind of a fancy way of, of practicing you know, mindfulness of thinking and mindfulness of, um, of uh, emotions and so on and so forth. Um, and so uh, as you begin to do this, as you begin to cultivate this introspective attention and you're beginning to notice thoughts and emotions and moods and mind states and so on and so forth, um, uh, you you see that that you've intended to be aware of that before you drift off and before you move into a state of dullness or sleepiness. Have you ever experienced, do you think you're meditating pretty, you know, pretty smoothly and then suddenly you're, you're doing whiplash sazen? <laughs> we were, that's what we called it at Tassahara, <laughs> whiplash sazen. We'd get up at four in the morning and in the zendo, but like those little uh, things that sit on the dash of a car, the head bobs. <laughs> so if we do this often before we've forgotten the breath or drifted off into dullness and sleepiness, this, this actually begins to sharpen uh, and brighten our mindfulness. And 
And we begin to notice not only the object of the meditation, but uh, there's a kind of a peripheral attention that's going on. So, you know, we're, we're sort of registering where we are and we're hearing things and we're deciding uh, whether we have to respond or not. All of this is happening automatically. But uh, the main focus of attention is on the primary object. But we, we haven't lost sight of, of this peripheral kind of an awareness. <clears throat> and um, so <clears throat> we do... We, as we develop this more and more, um, we find that things gradually get easier and easier. And <clears throat> the intention to incline the mind uh, in this way matures our mindfulness and our experience of a stable or a unified mind. And at this stage, the meditator can recognize and overcome almost any type of dullness or distraction because the mind is quite disciplined at this point. And, um, and then instead of introspective attention, there's a, there's a quality called introspective awareness. And this is where the mind actually uh, observes its own states and activities. It's the mind that observes, it's the awareness that observes the awareness that's paying attention to thoughts and moods and emotions. Yes? Okay. Have you ever had an experience? Do you know what I'm saying? If you don't know what I'm saying, it's, it doesn't make any difference. Um, <clears throat> This is something that will, this is where the practice does the meditator. The meditator doesn't necessarily do the practice. This just happens. As you pay more and more attention, there's this quality of awareness that actually um, people report where the mind can actually observe itself observing. And this all becomes gradually easier and easier. So with the conscious intention to continuously be on guard for dullness and distraction, the mind becomes accustomed to, it becomes used to sustaining attention and mindfulness. And this all becomes kind of effortless. Sounds easy, doesn't it? (laughs) I wish it were so easy. So... Effortless, sustained, exclusive attention. This is what the monks were practicing for in the monastery I was at. Sustained, exclusive attention produces mental and physical stability, uh, which creates the conditions for meditative joy, pleasure, profound tranquility, deep, deep experiences of, of equanimity and peacefulness. And, um, and what happens is that this kind of experience or this kind of happiness begins to pers- persist for the meditator in between the meditations. It just becomes more and 
more a part of your daily life experience. So this is where, you know, daily life and meditation just become almost seamless. So um, we cultivate these intentions with diligence and regular practice. And um, the suggestion is just to protect them from the hindrances and all the things that distract us, like procrastination, doubt, desire, aversion, agitation, anxiety, all the usual suspects. We don't try to like um, power through those things. All we have to do is recognize that they're happening. If we just recognize that they're happening, we've done our job. You see, we've, we now know what we're dealing with. And we will see the causes that lead to the conditions that will create new mental habits or keep us in the old habits that we have, um, that we live with in a normal way. So um, don't let impatience or frustration stop you from practicing or tempt you to look for other better or easier practices. You have got a beautiful practice here. Meditation is, uh, it's not the only thing that people can do to wake up, I suppose, but it is certainly one of the most effective ways. And just trust in the process. Um, Be patient. Care for your mind like a skilled gardener would care for his or her garden. And you will see that the seeds of your intention will flower and fruit in the most spectacular way. So I thank you very much. And I'm sorry that I didn't, didn't leave enough time for questions. If anyone has any questions, I'll hang out for a little bit here. <laughs>